0: open they're away in the golden slipper there's a great start and mid bit maskay on the extreme outside is about the first out get on the outside lunging but catlin opening just in front jackler trying desperately can't reach him catlin opening is lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit the juggler this podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales Sky Racing and English entries are now open for the 2021 English select yielding Sale series the series will again comprise five sales, Classic, Premier, Easter, Gold and the Hunter Thoroughbred Breeders' Association May Yealing Sale to be held at Riverside in Sydney and Oaklands Junction in Melbourne. Each of the three primary sales, Classic, Premier and Easter, will retain their regular places on the sales calendar. Following its success this year, the Scone sales will be moved permanently to Riverside on May 2nd and May 3rd and will be rebranded the HTBA Yearling Sale. The Gull Sale in Melbourne will be held on May 16th. To discuss the placement of your yearlings, contact a member of the English Bloodstock team. I've never before had the pleasure of interviewing a podcast guest with the threefold title of jockey, businessman, and inventor. But in the case of Queensland's Michael Pelling, that is a perfectly appropriate introduction. Michael was a four time Brisbane Premiership winning jockey. He continues to be successful in business, and inventions like his famous Pelling pacifiers are testimony. his innovative thinking. Michael, who quit the saddle in 2005, has never been a keeper of statistics. He's credited with a career winner tally of 918, but he says he can neither refute nor confirm that figure. A serious back injury in the year 2000 put him on the sidelines for almost a year, but he made it back to the track and rode for another four years. Sadly, he had a worse run with injury in that last four years than he'd had in the previous 20. He was 48 years old when he was dislodged from Rose of Destiny on the first turn in the Doomban Roses on 10,000 day 2005. He was delighted to be cleared of serious injury and embarked on a slow, steady recovery period. He wasn't too concerned when the back pain he'd dealt with for years persisted. Two months after the fall, one of his doctors insisted he get further x-rays, which revealed a fractured pelvis. Devastated and disillusioned, Michael Pelling instantly decided to announce his retirement. With trademark energy and resolve, he faced up to a life after racing. And in the 15 years since that retirement, much has happened in the life of Michael and Karen Pelling. Queensland has long been producing champion jockeys. Here's one of them. Mike Pelling, delight to have you on the podcast.
1: Oh, certainly my pleasure, John, and great to hear your voice again, mate.
0: Thank you, mate. It's been a very productive 15 years since you quit the saddle. Now, first thing you did was purchased 7.9 hectares of land at Castle Dean, about 16 kilometres to the north of Brisbane, where you developed a golf driving range. Now, you're a bloke who likes to keep busy, and that little venture kept you busy for a decade or more.
1: Yeah, it was... Uh, I, and when I had my injury, it was one of those things that I think every sports person and probably everyone in any business gets to where all of a sudden you say, well, what am I going to do now? I had, um, uh, still had children in school and you've got to earn a living. And, um, after my accident, I, I had been struggling with my back, but I, I had played a bit of golf throughout my year, very poorly. Mm. And Uh, I knew a guy on the Gold Coast who owned a golf driving range, and I talked to him, and uh, he said, "Yeah, you get the right position, they're they're a good money earner." And I didn't know really how my injuries would repair, whether I'd be able to do much, but I felt that I could um, build a golf driving range, so that's where we started, and uh, it was just a paddock that was pretty swampy and uh, a lot of regrowth. And uh, but eventually it turned into a very good uh, golf driving range.
0: Now, you sold that about three years ago, Michael, and still retirement wasn't on your agenda. So you looked for another project and you found one. You purchased a run-down former wedding reception resort at Mullaney on the Sunshine Coast hinterland, and you've completed a very big refurbishment. You've brought it back to life and you're looking forward to getting into the wedding reception business. When will you open?
1: We, look, to tell the truth, when I bought this property, I thought I'd have it running in 12 months. But when we started getting into the buildings and and uh, doing the refurbishment, there was a lot of lot more work needed doing than what we thought. It took a lot more time, a lot more money. Uh, two years down the track, we're still going. We still aren't open, so we've had two years without an income. Uh, we're hoping to have the accommodation going early in uh, next year, and then we'll once we uh, get the wedding reception building done, we'll be back into the weddings and events.
0: Good on you, mate. Exactly what you need. You've got to get that adrenaline flowing.
1: It was uh, it was quite amazing, really, when I finally retired uh, from the golf driving range, and you know. Um, uh, I'm sitting in a unit and it took me three weeks of having nothing to do to realize, no, I could never retire. Mm. And so the property we bought up here in Mullaney was one to keep me amused, I suppose, and keep me occupied. But because I've always had an interest in plants mm. um, and I felt that uh, Mullaney had the climate, but mainly the rainfall to where you could grow a diversity of plants and um so yeah plants and landscaping i think is something that's brought me a lot of joy over the years and i felt that okay if i can get this wedding and accommodation business going well that can earn its own dollars and i'll just keep uh, doing my planning and landscaping
0: mike you had two setbacks within two years which really strained your finances in 1998 you were embroiled in a supreme court case in which another jockey ray cleesey sought damages from you for injuries he'd sustained in a race fall many years earlier. The court ruled in his favour and you were left with a huge bill. 22 years ago, that was a rough call.
1: Yeah, it was It was something that in those days, I think Malcolm Johnson had previously been been sued for a similar thing mm. and I was probably the next one and, of course, there was no insurance. So uh, despite what we thought was, a, you know, an open and shut case, there was no blame to be attributed to me. The judge ruled the, the different way and uh, I had 21 days to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars.
0: Now, two years after that, you were involved in a race fall at Eagle Farm that left you with a ruptured disc requiring a discectomy, uh, the removal of the damaged disc that was wreaking havoc with your sciatic nerve. Now, I mentioned this in the intro, you stunned family and friends when you were riding in races again less than a year later. And then from then until 2005, you lived with back pain. Now, Mike, there's no more necessary evil than anti-inflammatories. They ease the pain, but they can cause awful ramifications. You couldn't get through a race day without them.
1: No, I um, I used to take a, a, a chemical called Mobic, mm. which was an anti-inflammatory, and I would take it uh, just as I got out of the sauna. So I'd get out of the sauna around about 11.30 and then just go straight to the races. And it was a a, a chemical that would just ease the pain, and I'd get through the day until probably the last race because obviously as you get older in any sport – Everybody's looking around to start calling you a veteran, and once that happens, you you um, your rides will dry up. So you have to be seen to be uh, to be okay. And if I came in limping or me- bent over, well, that would be the end. So this painkiller really kept I was able to walk up straight and ride the races, and it did. I, I was never affected really in my riding by my back, but mm. by around about four o'clock in the afternoon, by juice, she was starting to give me a bit of curry. Mm.
0: Well, it appeared you'd escaped injury in that fall from Rose of Destiny in 2005 and then, as I said, two months after, that doctor friend of yours got you to have fresh x-rays and they found a fractured pelvis.
1: Yeah, well, obviously because I'd had the back pain and it's always there, you know, once you, like anybody who's had um, a disc problem knows that you never escape it. And you know it's just a matter of how bad it is. Um, So I just assumed that um, because I had a lot of bruising from that fall, I was kicked about a fair bit. Mm. Um, I just assumed that it was just uh, the back was still sore, and um, when it wasn't yeah. healing, uh, the doctor said, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna do more tests." And uh, yeah, I had a mm. fractured
0: pelvis. Goodness me! And that was it. You pull the pin. And uh, before you knew it, you had the golf driving range. Now, Mike, you were one of ten kids born to Darcy and Edna Pelling and you grew up on the family dairy farm at Melanda on Queensland's famous Atherton Tablelands. Your principal memories of your mum and dad working seven days a week, never a holiday, never a change of scenery. That's the way it was back then.
1: Yeah, it was just one of those things, like a dairy farm is such a wonderful place for young children to grow up on. You know, you get exposed to everything in nature, life, death, birth, um, the weather, the soil, the plants. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're a farmer, especially when you're growing crops and you really are in touch with life, and for a child, it's brilliant, but for a parent, Wow, I would never wish that sort of pain on anybody. They just worked. Our parents just worked seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, rain, hail or shine. It was just monotonous, endless work. And there was not a real lot of money in it. But I think it did help in the sense of uh, supporting large families because you had – Your supply of milk, you had your supply of meat, you had your supply of eggs, Mm. um, maybe a bit of pumpkins growing here and you'd grow corn for the cattle, you'd eat that. So Mm. there was a few things that came off the farm that probably lessened the load financially for parents. Mm. Um, Yeah, there was 10 children in in, uh, my parents' family and our next-door neighbours had 13. So (laughs) when... uh, When the bus came around, we originally went in a truck, but eventually they did get a bus. When the bus came around to pick these two families up, that it nearly filled the bus.
0: Yeah, it wouldn't be a seat left.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and (laughs) and and we never really felt crowded, you know. Was no, um, it was just that's just the way it was.
0: You were riding ponies from a very early age, as most farm kids did back then, but things have changed, and you've got a very interesting theory. Now, these days, a much smaller number of country kids become apprentice jockeys because they no longer ride ponies around the farm. They prefer dirt bikes or quad bikes. They don't get to form an attachment to horses, Michael.
1: No, and I, I think that probably would have happened to me um, had I been maybe 10 years younger. Mm more than likely I would have been riding bikes when I was a kid rather than rather than horses and um, it's just the way the world has gone you know with the with the uh, advent of uh, machinery horses have gradually phased out from from our lives mm. to where uh, like on the properties there's not a lot of horse horses ridden anymore and horses horses are just something that uh, don't come into a lot of males lives and I think to me, I sort of look at what would attract a young male, say, below the age of 15 to become a jockey. Well, the normal thing would be a relationship with a horse. Mm. Um, now, unless they have a, a connection to the racing industry, becoming a jockey doesn't even enter their minds no. um, because the jockey is no longer – because the the racing is no longer publicized the way it was – um jockeys are no longer even recognised as sportsmen much anymore.
0: Mm. You've got another theory. You envisage the day when female jockeys will dominate the riding ranks. Now, the numbers have increased dramatically in recent years all over Australia, and you believe this is a result of pony clubs and show jumping and dressage clubs who have a huge female membership Girls get to love horses and many of them are just drawn to the racing game.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's just an inevitability. If if males aren't, aren't riding horses and have no connection to, to the racing, um, the, you've you've almost got to say, well, where are the trainers going to source their track work riders? Mm-hmm. And if any pony club throughout the country um, – there's probably ninety percent girls to males to fem- uh, females to males mm. and the girls have a they, I think girls have a different relationship with horses than males I think they have a greater uh, uh, let's maybe an affinity or love mm. um so of course when when a young girl gets involved with a horse it can be a it can be I guess love is a word that may not be the right word but Once they get that horse into their system, it's hard to get out. And of course, a lot of them migrate to the racing industry. And now, you know, the numbers of girls riding Mm. um, is increasing all the time to where you might find that uh, eventually there'll be very few male riders, if any, in another 50 years' time. Mm.
0: Uh, Michael, you've only got to look at the post race emotion shown by female strappers after these big races. The tears flow freely. I think,
1: from a a point of view of a strapper, and it's one thing that I prided myself—I never ever forgot—because I spent a lot of time strapping horses. Mm. Strappers put so much effort, so much time and effort into horses. You know, like the—they live and breathe all these horses in the stable, and when one of their horses wins a big race, Mm. it's such a pent-up emotional thing. Whereas. When you're a jockey, and especially these days where you're riding, you know, five, seven days a week, mm. it just becomes numbers. Like jockeys are hardly even got time to ride track work anymore. Mm. So the intimate relationship with horses is is uh, really not part of a jockey's life much anymore. It's more with the girls, that, oh, well, the guys, but the girls that ride track work do the stables. They're the ones that are really tied up with the
0: horses. After leaving school, you went jackarooing for a while on a cattle station where the head stockman suggested you had the right build to become a jockey. Now, he happened to know Pat Duff, a Brisbane trainer, very good with apprentices, and uh, it was the head stockman who put the wheels in motion for you.
1: Yeah, I I had no connection with racing whatsoever and, you know, hadn't even considered being a jockey was just wasn't even in my uh, in my mind in any way shape or form and there was no connection but having ridden horses all my life um, yeah this guy Noel Scott his name was owned a horse that was trained by Pat Duff and uh, he put a call into Pat Duff uh, about he come across this young guy that could ride a bit up, up in North Queensland and uh, was he looking for an apprentice and of course Pat was and he um, so a few phone calls were made to um, my parents, and uh, they asked me, and I said, "Well, I, I you know, was smart enough to realise there's no money in jackarooing. Mm. Um So uh, I thought, yeah, I'd like to give that a try. So um, that was it. Mm.
0: Now, a year after you started, poor old Pat got time when one of his horses returned a positive swab, and he was so disgusted he walked away from racing. You went to Tom Doyle for a while, and then later uh, to the late Bruce McLaughlin. So you had three masters during your apprenticeship.
1: That's correct. Yeah, I went from uh, when Pat uh, got disillusioned uh, with racing, I was transferred to Tom Doyle, and then after that, uh, I was then transferred to Bruce McLaughlin after an altercation with Tom Doyle.
0: Mm. Now, I don't want to stir unpleasant memories, Michael, but this is an amazing story about a typical fearless 17-year-old. One day, you're riding a horse bareback around the stabling area at Bruce McLaughlin's place. It shied away from a couple of cats. It decided to buck and it hurled you into a big tree. You woke up three hours later
1: yeah it was it was a pretty tough type of life when you're an apprentice jockey, especially most of the most of the kids that became apprentice jockeys were from probably dis, disadvantaged families, um usually uneducated and the, look, uh, a lot of them lived in pretty bad conditions and works terrible hours. and when i was when this had happened to me at uh, Bruce McLaughlin's, i um I came to that night at about 7 o'clock. I don't really remember because it was only told to me what had happened. I couldn't remember what had happened. But I was lying in my bed with my boots on, covered in sawdust and dirt. I woke up and I didn't really know where I was or how I got here. So I got out of the the little uh, shack that we were all living in and I walked over to the house where they were all up having dinner.
0: You mean they just dumped you on the bed?
1: That's it. I was, uh, <laughs> yep, I was dragged up from there, just dumped on the bed and left there.
0: Goodness me.
1: And uh, I came to uh, that night at 7 o'clock and uh, walked in and, um, the, yeah, that was that was really, uh, that was just the, the, how tough a life was. And yeah. it wasn't really till a, probably a week and a half, maybe a little longer after that, but I'd, um, a doctor who owned a horse in the stable took me down because I had a very stiff neck. Yeah uh took me down to his uh, to his uh, practice and got me x-rayed and uh, found out I had a broken neck. Uh,
0: to To what extent, Mike?
1: Well, I was in a brace for six weeks, mm-hmm. um, so it was well, what he said was, had I had another fall with that broken neck, it probably would have killed me um, mm-hmm. because it was it was quite a it was a fracture that hadn't done damage to this to the um nerves. Mm-hmm but it was still a fracture and uh, would have been quite weak. So luckily in that 10 days after that, I didn't uh, I didn't come off any.
0: No, exactly, and uh, you made a full recovery. Now, not surprisingly, Pat Duff was missing the horses terribly and he decided to re-establish himself at Toowoomba and he invited you to go to the downs as a stable jockey. You were happy to do it.
1: Yeah, look, I, I think that uh, I wasn't... Um, making any progress as far as riding uh, in Brisbane, even though when I came down at 15, I I could probably outride just about all the kids that were around because I'd ridden all my life. Um, I was getting bypassed. There were young apprentices that were two and three years older than me riding in races, and I was still being basically used as a strapper, mm-hmm. even though I was supposedly getting I was getting paid an apprentice wage. So when Pat Duff um, contacted me and asked me to come to Toowoomba, I thought, well, I think uh, I'd be much happier up there.
0: Mm. Now, everybody remembers the first winner, Michael. You know, I've spoken to so many jockeys and apprentices over the years who experienced that magic moment. It means so much to them. And yours was a horse called Moretto Sal for a veteran trainer called Les Richardson. Which track was that at Toowoomba?
1: It would have been at Toowoomba. Yeah, mm. yeah um, lovely old bloke Les Richardson, and and typically like Toowoomba. Toowoomba was a wonderful country, uh, a town because mm. there are so many people that had come from the country from properties that you know the Isle people had uh, and moved to Toowoomba, and the, the, I guess they were my type of people, and uh, I just loved it up there.
0: Pat Duff supplied your first city winner. Horse's name was Hispania.
1: Yep, that's correct. Yeah, big day. Yeah, well, it's—I uh, guess it is. You know, you—you—you you, um, uh, you never know when you're going to ride a winner. Like I hadn't been riding all that long, but mm-hmm. yeah, it was a—it was a big day. And uh, yeah, you do—you remember your your first ride. And um, the, he was owned by people called uh, Redmans, mm-hmm. um, two brothers Redman that were had quite a few horses with Pat Duff, and uh, they were terrific. Oh, really? Just old gentlemen, you know. They were yeah. wonderful old likes. Yeah.
0: Apart from Pat Duff, there was one other trainer for whom you had tremendous admiration. During your Toowoomba days, you formed an association with the legendary Jim Atkins, the remarkable J.J. Atkins, who touched the lives of so many people.
1: He was, uh, he was just one of a kind, Jim Atkins. He was. Uh, I never, ever heard him and Pat Duff the same ever bag a jockey. Mm. Never heard him say a bad word about a jockey's ride. Um, He treated me so well and through him and getting rides from him. And uh, I think that uh, was probably one of the biggest boosts to my riding career because, John, there are so many jockeys that I've come across in my life that I felt were equally as good as me, if not better. That never really made it. Mm. And sometimes you you just need that little bit of a boost from a good quality horse to actually put your head, your your name in the limelight, mm. um that will then spur you on to greater things. And if it doesn't happen to you, sometimes you just get branded as uh, as not a, as good a jockey. And mm. look, I've seen it over the years where there were jockeys that really battled and battled and battled because of, very poor quality rides.
0: They never got on the right horse.
1: But then I've seen the same jockeys all of a sudden get good ammunition underneath them and become reg- regarded as fantastic jockeys. Yeah, of course. And what? you know, I tell everybody that look, if a horse is going to run last, it doesn't matter what jockey is on; it's going to run last. Mm. Um, the the uh, the jockey only plays a certain part in any in any horse to win a race. Mm. Mostly it's horse. Mostly it's probably 80% horse, so the the horse is uh, most important. Mm. There's probably out of the extra 20%, there's probably 10% jockey or 15% jockey and 5% luck. Mm.
0: Oh, absolutely. The jockey's job really, Michael, is to be in the right place at the right time and hopefully the horse will do the rest.
1: Yeah, look, there is sometimes when you ride in a race and it's happened to me on occasions where you've done something that was just your thing mm. that has either let the horse win or, you know, did something that put the horse in a good position. And and it's your own little personal feeling that, geez, I did that well. Mm. Even if you don't win the race, hardly anyone, unless it wins, no one ever recognises it. Yeah. But every jockey would have that where they've done some little thing in a race that they they thought was just brilliant. And uh, you do have those times. Mm. As I say, if a horse doesn't win, no one ever sees it.
0: Mm. Just getting back to Jim Atkins, Mike, you'd be aware he died in 2010 at age 94. He was still training. In fact, he had a runner just a few days before he died, I think, at Eagle Farm. He trained 3,000 winners and he had wonderful horses like Dalrello and Grey Affair, Prince Ruling, Just Now, and Mr. Cromwell. Now, Mr. Cromwell was a very good horse for M. Pelling. In the winter of 1981, you won the big Brisbane three-year-old double on him, the Grand Prix and the Queensland Derby.
1: Yeah, he was probably the best horse I rode as far as, um, you know, winning races. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that was a, that was quite a thrill to win that. And, you know, to have a, a horse win those races, being a, a Queensland-based horse, mm. uh, was quite unique. You know, he was... Um, um, he was a very good horse and eventually he did go down to uh, to race in uh, in Melbourne.
0: Yes, and you went with him. You won the Dalgetty on Mr. Cromwell um, in 1981, uh, the, the previously known, of course, as the Hotham Handicap. I think it had been called the Dalgetty for a couple of years when you won it on Mr. Cromwell. And a rider winner on Derby Day, Michael, must have been a massive thrill. They say it's the the best individual race day of the year certainly in victoria
1: well it certainly is an eye opener when you go down to, uh, from queensland to go to the big meeting in melbourne um to get the, to feel that enthusiasm and the atmosphere from the crowds um i just think that uh, having people at the racetrack is so crucial because it the atmosphere is electric when there's people there and it doesn't really matter what they're there for. You just need to have that crowd and the buzz Mm. and uh, certainly you you certainly got it at uh, those big meetings.
0: Well, Mr Cromwell was a very special horse for you because he was your one and only ride in the Melbourne Cup. 1981, Just a Dash won that Cup. You finished ninth, but he did run a cheeky race. You were right with the leaders turning for home but he pulled up with a problem, you tell me.
1: Yeah, I think that was his last race. He pulled up and and uh, you could probably say broke down in the race or he pulled up sore afterwards. Um, he was a very easy horse to ride, as most good horses are, John. Truthfully, um, good horses are, uh, are so easy to ride because they just, they don't waste any energy. They'll do what, what you want them to do. And if there's a gap forming in front of you, you can push your way into the gap and make it bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yes, he, he was a very easy horse to ride and um, I was just privileged to have those rides on him at that time.
0: Well, just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. Mike, back with you in a moment. With the Everest and the Golden Eagle for 2020 firmly ensconced in the record books, the Spring Spotlight will now focus on the beautiful Broadmeadow track at Newcastle. Saturday the 14th of November sees the second running of The Hunter, a $1 million race for three-year-olds and upwards over 1,300 metres. Co-features on the day will be the Group 3 Spring Stakes for three-year-olds and the Max Lees two-year-old classic. One week later, November the 21st, the action moves south for the gong three-year-olds and upwards worth one million dollars over the testing kembler mile the kembler and newcastle clubs have provided great service to the new south wales racing industry over many years and it's fitting that they've been acknowledged by racing new south wales in such a way november the 14th the hunter november the 21st the gong both carrying one million part of the new look at new south wales racing brisbane's famous albion park track right on Breakfast Creek, closed its doors to Thoroughbred Racing in 1981. Now, here is a great piece of trivia. Michael Pelling rode the winner of the last race ever run at Albion Park on a specialist creaker called Lear News.
1: Yeah, well, uh, he was a horse trained by Jim Atkins and... He would win races at Albion Park by lengths, three, four, five lengths. Mm. You put him in the same class of horse in the grass, and he'd run last.
0: Good heavens!
1: And that was uh, that wasn't only him. That was just almost so common. It was very rare to have a horse that could gallop really well on the sand and do the same on the grass. Mm. Um, I'm a shadow was probably one. There's there's a red seas I think was another one. That, but for 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 my experience anyway. Um, that Albion Park track on the sand was was so unique. And what an awful track to ride. Like, the, 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 the track was so unique. Like, uh, you could have a horse, for instance, if you're in a mile race there, mm-hmm. that would be tailed out last. And the sand would be coming back up so fast and so hard that the horse copping it in the face would just want to pull up. And what you'd do is you'd pull out at the five furlong mark. You might be running last 15, 20 lengths from the from the mm. leaders. You'd pull out wide as you can to get out of the sand of the horses in front.
0: Yeah, and, get, out, get and, away from the kickback.
1: And, yep, and pull the whip. Mm. And you would then have to change the horse's mind. And sometimes you could have a horse that was completely beaten. They get out into the sand and all of a sudden they're not not getting hit in the face and the eyes with the sand mm. and they would take off yeah. and it was just a, a unique thing at uh, on dirt tracks.
0: yeah and yet punters love the place.
1: Um, yeah well I guess um, you know they could pick horses out that just really love racing at the creek mm. and um, I had a lot of success there but by jeez, I'll tell you what it certainly taught you how to ride um, because <laughs> okay. it was a very tight track. When you went around the corners, you'd be leaning in on the rail. Um, you, you, uh, you learned a lot of riding tactics at, at Albion Park that you would never have picked up elsewhere.
0: Mm. Who was the top interstate jockey that had one ride there and said never again? Did you tell me that story?
1: I didn't, mate. No, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: I think my... what what happened at Albion Park, um, or what would happen, it was so low that at, at a king tide, the the, the seawater would come up through the drains and flood the track. And there was a big flood maybe in the early 80s mm-hmm. that uh, where the the sand was all flooded with from the Brisbane River. And so they replaced the sand, but they didn't replace it with beach sand. They placed it with a very abrasive brace of sand. And what would happen is uh when you'd ride in the rush because if it, there was any moisture on the track you couldn't wear goggles because you'd they'd, they'd uh, you'd be blinded within a few minutes uh with the goggles because the sand would leave stains on the goggles and you couldn't see. So you'd have to ride basically peering through and you'd be crouched down behind your horse's mane and pick your head up every now and then to make sure you're not running into anyone in the front, try to figure out who was doing what. And um, the sand was so abrasive that oftentimes you, the jockeys would go in between races into the bathroom and scoop out a like a, a, a quarter of a thumbnail of sand from their eyelids, and a lot of times their eyes would be bleeding. Yeah. So it was uh, it it wasn't a comfortable track to ride on at all, and um, it'd you would wreck your gear, your saddles would get wrecked, your boots would get wrecked. <laughs> oh, oh man, it was just like being in a sandblast.
0: So Michael, there was. Um... You know, uh, all-round satisfaction among the jockeys when it became a harness track.
1: Yeah, I don't think any of us, any too many of us, shed a tear. No. Uh, put it that way. Um, yeah. yeah, it was unique. It was an experience. But no, um, <laughs> no, I certainly uh, didn't look forward to getting getting sandblasted when we rose, rode at Albion Park.
0: The Doombin Ten Thousand was a mighty race for you. You won it three times. The first in 1993 on Unequaled for the late Kelso Wood. You beat two very good uh, uh, Brisbane horses in Buck's Pride and Meg's Ego. It was an all Queensland finish.
1: Yeah, well that was quite rare, and I think as the years gone by, it's been harder and harder for uh, Queensland horses to uh, to win those races. But um, yeah, Unequal was uh, he was owned by a guy called Peter Whitehead, who was. Um, Uh, a a wonderful guy and did a fair bit for the BATC and Kelsey Wood, who was also a really, really good trainer and a damn good Mm. bloke. Mm.
0: Certainly was. You had a lot to do with that horse. Unequalled, you won four races on him altogether. You rode him in a Stradbroke one year, unplaced but not too far away, and you rode him in three races in Sydney, Mike, with no luck, including an Epsom.
1: That's right, yeah, no, he just didn't measure up down there.
0: Your second Doom 10,000 win was on a New South Wales horse called Suntane. <clears throat> pardon me, trained by Bernie Howlett. Was that a pick up, right?
1: Uh well it was a uh, yeah I, I got I, I got on that uh, on that horse he was from New South Wales so I didn't really know gr- a great deal about him but um um yeah it was it was just another another win. Yeah. And uh, he was a, he was another really old-time trainer, Bernie.
0: Mm. He was. He probably had your riding him work, did he, in Brisbane?
1: I, To tell the truth, mate, I don't remember even whether I ever got on the horse until race day.
0: Mm. Well, your third 10,000 was on a very smart Toowoomba horse, Laurie's Lottery, 1999. He was a late three-year-old. When you rode him to win the big sprint, you beat a horse called Adam, corporate James ran third, and Chief De Beers ran forth. I think you had to survive a protest.
1: Yes, I think I was very lucky to keep that one. Um, there was a little bit of shenanigans de- going down the going down to the winning post and um, uh, I, there's, let's just say I was doing a little bit of crowding. you and, you and Jimmy Byrne. <laughs> yes. Yes, um, I I was doing a little bit of crowding and um, it was, look, it was a tactical thing simply because Laurie's Lottery did have problems Mm. and he only had a short burst and I knew that uh, Adam would beat me if it was just a a run to the line as an equal run. So I had to try to get in front of him, even if I got a neck in front of him. So I had that little bit of a sprint at the top of the straight Mm. and I was able to get get my neck around in front of Adam, and then what I thought, what I was trying to do was get my horse to psychologically uh, slow him down. So if you get your horse and turn your horse's head a little bit inwards on the, the other horse, mm. sometimes the other horse thinks you're coming in and, and the horse will actually put his own brakes on.
0: Yeah.
1: So there's there's little things you do, but you've got to be careful doing that, that you don't actually touch because if you touch or change the other horse's stride, you're going to lose the race. Mm. So it was a, a very, very tricky balancing act. And at the same time, I was on the outside and I was able to use the whip on my horse and I was able to stick my right arm out on the inside as I was crowding Jimmy Byrne mm. and he was unable to hit his horse with the whip. So all he was doing was hitting me on the arm, which I paid, paid for later on. It really hurt, but um, I was able to prevent him hitting his horse with the whip and crowded him, and I was just able to just just win the race. I, I think it was only a, a nose or a head in it.
0: You formed a great attachment to an old horse of Pat Duff's by the name of Handsome Prince, who was a terrific weight carrier. He won with up to 62 kilos on one or two occasions, and you tell me he was an absolute gentleman to ride, a tremendous trier, but he had a funny action, Michael. He, he He could sometimes look lame and feel lame.
1: Yeah, well, look, he I don't think he raced till he was four mm. because he had really bad knees. he His knees looked like your knuckles, He had that many lumps on his knees, Definitely. And when he went out on the track in the mornings to exercise, he would be that crotchety, you would think, "Well, there's no point. But what was really good about this horse, it was quite a he he was unique, like I was saying about how good horses are easy to ride. Mm. He was a horse that if you wanted to go fast from the barriers, you could make him go fast. And then the minute that you said steady up, mate, he would just steady up and drop the bit. Whereas a lot of horses, if you set them alight from the barrier, that's it. They'll pull their, you know, that'll bring them undone because they put their own accelerator on and then you've got to put the brake on. So you waste the energy. Mm. He was just such a beautiful horse to ride, uh, not only in races, but track work and um, he eventually became the clerk of the course horse at, uh, at Eagle Farm for many years.
0: You had a very strict policy throughout your riding career, and that was to separate your racing life from your private life. And you tell me Karen would go to the occasional race meeting with friends, but not too often, and your kids were conspicuous by their absence from the racetrack. You've got three daughters, Laura, Amanda and Georgia, and one son, Darcy, who was named after your dad, and they were rarely seen at the racetrack.
1: Well, I I can only remember my kids going to the races once, and that was, I had a property in Toowoomba, a little farm, little hobby farm in Toowoomba, which I'd bought when I was living up there, and it was a great escape for me every weekend. After I rode, I'd jump straight in the four-wheel drive, and up we'd go to the farm, and the day my kids went to the races there, it happened to be a Saturday Ipswich uh, Ipswich Cup meeting on a Saturday, mm-hmm. and rather than driving back to Brisbane to pick them up and then back to Toowoomba, we decided that we'll, uh, we'll take them to the races and um, we'll just go straight up from there, and I, that was the only time they ever went to the races. But I, I sort of did that purposely because I didn't really want my kids to be, especially the girls to be wanting to get involved in, uh, in horse racing and then wanting to become jockeys. And I d- didn't know how big they were going to grow. So the normal thing would be, uh, my, my wife, Karen was only who she come from small stock. And so was I. So there was a good chance our kids would stay small enough. Mm. And, uh, I just felt racing was just far too dangerous for my girls to be riding. So I, I tried to keep, my racing away. Uh, I never bought a racing photo. I didn't. Never. I never kept a trophy, mm. um, and I've never ever never got a photo of a, of winning a race.
0: Well, you're a very rare jockey, Michael.
1: I was just purposely done. I, I you yeah. know I just felt that to tell the truth, I didn't think it was all that important in the sense of having a photo of me me riding a horse in a race. It was just something that didn't. It was just not really important mm. to me, you know. So um yeah it was just something i didn't do
0: you and karen are grandparents
1: yeah we've had uh one daughter laura's had a baby and she's just about due to have another one now
0: right and she lives interstate i think
1: she lives in melbourne yeah so uh, it's very stressful for them at the moment with the uh, COVID restrictions down there because um there she spent the uh, the better part of this um, pregnancy in isolation mm,
0: she's okay though no problems
1: Oh yeah, it's fine, but it's just very frustrating, and um, I think uh, she's already obviously got a young young son there who's who's a handful, and um, it's uh, yeah, it's just been a, a difficult time for for them and for everybody that's in that, because uh, luckily in Queensland here we um, we haven't even really noticed it.
0: You were deeply upset uh, by a story that appeared in a Brisbane newspaper in 2003 that implied a group of leading Brisbane jockeys were involved in team riding. Now, you assumed, of course, that you were included in that group and you took the unprecedented measure of taking a lie detector test under the supervision of the Queensland police. You had the findings from that test sent to the journalist who'd written the story... You don't do anything in half measures do you
1: well again it was just my how I guess my uh, brain was working at the time I thought where I was I was really riding under a stay of proceedings with my back by that stage and I knew that my riding career could be over at any day mm. um, it was a day-to-day proposition with my back and I thought well I've prided myself on my honesty and integrity throughout my riding career and despite you know all the innuendo and rumors that you know, people want to circulate around about about jockeys and racing um when this guy published this in the in the paper we were not only me but some of the other jockeys were quite incensed about it and because he hadn't named names not a real lot we could do but I I didn't know where what I was going to do when I retired and I felt well how the hell can I challenge this assumption mm. And not only this assumption, but something that most jockeys put up with most of their lives. So I thought, all oh right, well, I will. I will uh, I'll do the ultimate test. I'll subject myself to a lie detector test. And um, Bart Sinclair was the uh, was a guy that I rang ab- about it, and he was the one that got the questions. I didn't know what the questions were going to be, mm. and he uh, he was the guy that uh, worked in with the CIB to um, put the questions to me, and they they strapped me up. And um, you know, it was it was something that wasn't only my way of trying to show the general public that the stories they hear about racing or jockeys aren't true in the majority of cases, but also about the people in racing. And one of the questions was in my riding career. Bear in mind, I, you know, I'd been riding for 28 years, mm. and I'd ridden for you know most of the trainers in Queensland and and thousands of owners. And one of the questions was. Have I ever been approached, no, have I ever been offered any incentive, whether it be money or reward, to prevent a horse from winning a race in my riding career? Mm. And I was was able to say quite clearly no. Mm. I had never, ever been approached to stop a horse from winning. It's just something that didn't happen. Now, I uh, will say that, yes, there are some jockeys, probably some that may be desperate. Um, have some other problems in their lives where they're desperate, whether it be drugs or something. But by far the majority are just out there doing their best. They make mistakes, mm. um, but by far the majority of jockeys are just out there. And and not only the jockeys, but this was a reflection on the trainers. No trainer ever approached me to stop a horse, ever. Yeah. Yeah. No owner ever approached me to stop a horse. So it, was not, it wasn't only my way of, of trying to clear my name. It was trying to paint a better picture of racing
0: yeah, protect than what, the industry. Most,
1: yeah, what most people were, were viewing. You know. And you can only tell your truth, and I felt that, okay, as I bow out of racing, because I felt when I hang up the saddle, no one's ever going to be interested in me anymore. Um, I felt, felt I needed to do it while I was riding.
0: It's well documented that you've been called the Thomas Edison of Australian racing you love the challenge of coming up with an idea that might have commercial potential. Now, perhaps your best-known invention is the equine hood that became known as the Pelling Pacifiers, headwear for horses which featured a mesh shield across the eye openings. Now, you originally intended them purely as eye protectors, but I think it was Jim Atkins who suggested there might be another benefit.
1: The the idea for these goggles for horses really came from Albion Park, where what we found we, we uh, if you rode with plastic goggles when the track was wet, you within five seconds of riding you had to pull them down. So rather than having no eye protection, we started wearing as jockeys mesh goggles, mm. and we found the mesh stopped the majority of the large bits of sand hitting you in the eye mm. and it stopped the velocity. So you could ride with the mesh goggles without getting all your eyes cut about. Mm. But meanwhile, horses get a heck of a lot more damage to their eyes than what a lot of people think. And not only on sand tracks, on every track, especially track that is has got dirt flying up. And a horse's head is a lot closer to where it's coming from than what the jockey is. We're protected by the horse. So I then sort of put two and two together and said, wouldn't it be fantastic if you could build a mesh goggle to protect a horse's eye? And that's what I what I did. It took a long time to do it and test it, but it was never really taken seriously by horse trainers as an eye protector, but Jim Atkins uh, was using it, and he said to me one time, he said, by gee, these things settle horses down. Mm-hmm. He said, you should change their name. So we ended up changing to pacifiers. Mm-hmm. And to tell the truth, I think it was very poor marketing because, yes, trainers did buy them to settle horses down or as a last resort if a horse, you know, needed something. But eye protection in Australia was never really taken
0: seriously. You've been a bloke to think outside the square for most of your life. And when it came time to devise a marketing uh, method for the pacifiers, you did so in a very novel way. You galloped a horse on a private track. Uh, the horse was wearing a set of your pacifiers. You were wearing nothing. Now, that photo, Michael, got wide coverage, which is exactly what you hoped would happen. It it
1: was uh, quite uh, amazing how this came about, and and I guess, like all of us, you have to blame alcohol. <laughs> I was at a barbecue and I'd I'd made these goggles up and we did some photographs of horses wearing the goggles, but they very hard to distinguish but wearing the goggles or wearing just a set of blinkers and sitting around having a, having a drink with some friends one night. And one of the friends was a photographer. I said, well, what what can I do to draw attention to them? And and the, he said, uh, well, you just do what everybody else does, just get a naked girl to sit on them. That's what <laughs> that's that's what Ferrari does with their cars, or you know, Pirelli does with selling tyres. You just and anyway, so of course we um we couldn't get a naked girl to ride the horse, and said, so, well, you know, I just said, oh, how am I going to do that? And uh, anyway, well, why don't you do it? I said, well, I bloody well will. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so um, once the challenge was there, that was it. And look, I must take this opportunity to uh, probably to apologise to the poor lady that legged me up on the horse, <laughs> because um,
0: it's the least you can do.
1: <laughs> she's never, never been able to look me in the eye ever since.
0: <laughs> and they tell me uh, copies or prints of that uh, original photo can be found all over Australia.
1: It was quite funny because. Um, we had these uh, these horse goggles for sale at one of the saddleries on the Gold Coast, and I'd put a, the poster because I'd only done one or two of these posters up. Um, and the uh, the saddlery rang me up and said, "Oh, we've got so much interest in your in your pacifiers, and uh, or your protectors as they were called then." Mm. And I thought, "Oh, fantastic! I'm glad, glad. You know, well, okay, well." What's uh, what's happening? They said, "Well, it's actually not the the, the protectors themselves. People want to get your photograph." Mm. So um, <laughs> what we did, we printed a heap of them up, and they were they were purchased by pubs and clubs and people all over Australia. And um, yeah, it was just one of those funny little quirky things you do at the time. And mm. I didn't put a great deal of thought into it. It was just one of those things that happened, and I think it was a harmless little. Um, a little advertising thing, yeah. And it, yeah, worked.
0: it, was, and it worked. Michael, yeah. we've only got a couple of minutes left, and uh, uh, which is a pity because I had several more questions for you. But just quickly, another one of your inventions that got uh, uh, a very high profile was a fishing bait. Now, you were of the opinion that the brim species of fish loved bread, but bread wouldn't stay on a fish hook. So you made that a major project. How'd you go with that one?
1: Well, again, it was just one of those things you observe. And and uh, John, I will tell you, and this is something I haven't told you in the past. But mm. just recently, there was a young girl that died from swallowing a button battery. Mm. And I don't know whether you remember or you uh, people would remember that some years ago, about five years ago, another young girl, I think the name was Steer, mm. were also died from swallowing a button battery. Mm. And to try to explain how my my brain works is, you know, it's just something that I how, – how I do it is – and I don't know why and it annoys me to hell because I just wish it had given me a rest. But when this girl died of the button battery, I started thinking, well, surely there's something you could do with that. So I ended up de- designing a protective coating on the button batteries that prevented the reaction – of the acid buildup, Uh, what happens when they swallow a battery is the battery reacts because of the way the batteries are built. So I designed straight away. I I thought, well, there's got to be a way. So I started looking at batteries and looking at the design of them, and I came up with this invention where you could treat a battery in a certain way that would prevent the reaction. And how I tested it was exactly what I found how they tested batteries. You'd get a couple of pieces of uh, salami or meat like that, and you would put the battery in between two slices. And within a few hours, that battery would react and almost burn a hole in the salami. So when I treated my battery, I treated my batteries and put them in the salami no reaction. So I took it to the Queensland University and they did the test themselves and found out that my idea completely worked. Mm. So the the women were at the forefront of trying to get the government to in, uh, improve the packaging of that battery, of the batteries, who were still there. I see the lady on the news the other night was also still there uh, I contacted them because I thought, Well, look, this is an idea. I, I don't care about it, but I wish someone would take it up and and try it because it might save some kid's life. Mm. So that's similarly what I did with this bread bait. I was living at narang on the on the Narang River, mm. and uh, I'd, you'd be down there trying to catch fish, mainly brim, and you're not getting a bite, so you have a sandwich and you throw the bread out, next thing there's a feeding frenzy. Mm. So I thought, well, man, wouldn't it be fantastic if you could work out a way to keep bread on a hook, mm. which I did. It took a long time, but I worked out a way yeah. where you could manufacture bread and keep it on a hook. I I took it scuba diving to test flavoring. We caught so many different fish on it because surprisingly, you it was surprising how many fish will eat bread. And I got to a stage where I actually had it so that I could store it on a shelf. You didn't have to freeze it. You could store it for three or four months just in a shelf in a cryopack bag. A bag. Um, so I was going to go into this production of uh, bread bait. Then I decided to build a golf driving range, so that was put on the shelf <laughs> and the bread The bread was – and I've never picked it up again, and it is a shame because yeah. it's, it was a damn good product and it'll probably ain't never, ever see the light of day.
0: Yeah, and there have been others, Michael, but I'm afraid uh, time constraints are going to prevent us uh, looking at them. May I conclude by saying that when racing men discuss the merits of Queensland's best jockeys of the last 70 or 80 years, your name will always be on the list. Great to catch up and reminisce a little, Mike. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you very much, John.
0: And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound.